Chapter 11 Time and Time Preference Human Action Number 1 Perspective in the Valuation of Time Periods Acting man distinguishes the time before satisfaction of a one is attained and the time for which the satisfaction continues. Action always aims at the removal of future uneasiness, be it only the future of the impending instant. Between the setting in of action and the attainment of the end sought, there always elapses a fraction of time, vis-a-vis the maturing time in which the seed sown by the action grows to maturity. The most obvious example is provided by agriculture. Between the tilling of the soil and the ripening of the fruit, there passes a considerable period of time. Another example is the improvement of the quality of wine by aging. In some cases, however, the maturing time is so short that ordinary speech may assert that the success appears instantly. As far as action requires the employment of labor, it is concerned with the working time. The performance of every kind of labor absorbs time. In some cases, the working time is so short that people say the performance requires no time at all. Only in rare cases does a simple, indivisible, and non-repeatable act suffice to attain the end aimed at. As a rule, what separates the actor from the goal of his endeavors is more than one step only. He must make many steps. And every further step to be added to those previously made raises anew the question whether or not he should continue marching toward the goal once chosen. Most goals are so far away that only determined persistence leads to them. Persevering action, unflinchingly directed to the end sought, is needed in order to succeed. The total expenditure of time required, i.e. working time plus maturing time, may be called the period of production. The period of production is long in some cases and short in other cases. It is sometimes so short that it can be entirely neglected in practice. The increment in one satisfaction which the attainment of the end brings about is temporally limited. The result produced extends services only over a period of time, which we may call the duration of serviceableness. The duration of serviceableness is shorter with some products and longer with other goods, which are commonly called durable goods. Hence, acting men must always take into account the period of production and the duration of serviceableness of the product. In estimating the disutility of a project considered, he is not only concerned with the expenditure of material factors and labor required, but also with the period of production. In estimating the utility of the expected product, he is concerned with the duration of its serviceableness. Of course, the more durable a product is, the greater is the amount of services it renders. But if these services are not cumulatively available on the same date, but extended piecemeal over a certain period of time, the time element, as will be shown, plays a particular role in their evaluation. It makes a difference whether n units of service are rendered on the same date or whether they are stretched over a period of n days in such a way that only one unit is available daily. It is important to realize that the period of production as well as the duration of serviceableness are categories of human action and not concepts constructed by philosophers, economists, and historians as mental tools for their interpretation of events. They are essential elements present in every act of reasoning that precedes and directs action. It is necessary to stress this point because Bombawork, to whom economics owes the discovery of the role played by the period of production, failed to comprehend the difference. Acting man does not look at his condition with the eyes of a historian. He is not concerned with how the present situation originated. His only concern is to make the best use of the means available today for the best possible removal of future uneasiness. The past does not count for him. 
He has at his disposal a definite quantity of material factors of production. He does not ask whether these factors are nature-given or the product of production processes accomplished in the past. It does not matter for him how great a quantity of nature-given, i.e. original material factors of production and labor, was expended in their production and how much time these processes of production have absorbed. He values the available means exclusively from the aspect of the services they can render him in his endeavors to make future conditions more satisfactory. The period of production and the duration of serviceableness are for him categories in planning future action, not concepts of academic retrospection and historical research. They play a role in so far as the actor has to choose between periods of production of different length and between the production of more durable and less durable goods. Action is not concerned with the future in general, but always with a definite and limited fraction of the future. This fraction is limited, on the one side by the instant in which the action must take place. Where its other end lies depends on the actor's decision and choice. There are people who are concerned with only the impending instant. There are other people whose provident care stretches far beyond the prospective length of their own life. We may call the fraction of future time for which the actor in a definite action wants to provide in some way and to some extent, the period of provision. In the same way in which acting man chooses among various kinds of want satisfaction within the same fraction of future time, he chooses also between want satisfaction in the nearer and in the remoter future. Every choice implies also a choice of a period of provision. In making up his mind how to employ the various means available for the removal of uneasiness, man also determines implicitly the period of provision. In the market economy, the demand of the consumers also determines the length of the period of provision. There are various methods available for a lengthening of the period of provision. Number one, the accumulation of larger stocks of consumer goods destined for later consumption. Number two, the production of goods which are more durable. Number three, the production of goods requiring a longer period of production. Number four, the choice of methods of production consuming more time for the production of goods, which could also be produced within a shorter period of production. The first two methods do not require any further comment. The third and the fourth methods must be scrutinized more closely. It is one of the fundamental data of human life and action that the shortest processes of production, i.e. those with the shortest period of production, do not remove felt uneasiness entirely. If all those goods which these shorter processes can provide are produced, unsatisfied want remains and incentive to further action is still present. As acting men prefers those processes which, other things being equal, produce the products in the shortest time, only such processes are left for further action which consume more time. People embark upon these more time-consuming processes because they value the increment in satisfaction expected more highly than the disadvantage of waiting longer for their fruits. Baumbauer speaks of the higher productivity of roundabout ways of production requiring more time. It is more appropriate to speak of the higher physical productivity of production process requiring more time. The higher productivity of these processes does not always consist in the fact that they produce, with the same quantity of factors of production expended, a greater quantity of products. More often, it consists in the fact that they produce products which could not be produced at all in shorter periods of production. These processes are not roundabout processes. They are the shortest and quickest way to the goal chosen. 
If one wants to catch more fish, there is no other method available than the substitution of fishing with the aid of nets and canoes for fishing without the aid of this equipment. There is no better, shorter, and cheaper method for the production of aspirin known than that adopted by the chemical plants. If one disregards error and ignorance, there cannot be any doubt about the highest productivity and expediency of the processes chosen. If people had not considered them the most direct process vis-a-vis -vis those leading by the shortest way to the end sought, they would not have adopted them. The lengthening of the period of provision through the mere accumulation of stocks of consumers' goods is the outcome of the desire to provide an advance for a longer period of time. The same is valid for the production of goods, the durability of which is greater in proportion to the greater expenditure of factors of production required. But if temporally remoter goals are aimed at, lengthening of the period of production is a necessary corollary of the venture. The end sought cannot be attained in a shorter period of production. The postponement of an act of consumption means that the individual prefers the satisfaction which later consumption will provide to the satisfaction which immediate consumption could provide. The choice of a longer period of production means that the actor values the product of the process bearing fruit only at a later date, more highly than the products which a process consuming less time could provide. In such deliberations and the resulting choices, the period of production appears as waiting time. It was the great contribution of Javans and Bombawork to have shown the role played by taking account of waiting time. If acting men were not to pay heed to the length of the waiting time, they would never say that a goal is temporally so distant that one cannot consider aiming at it. Faced with the alternative of choosing between two processes of production which render different output with the same input, they would always prefer that process which renders the greater quantity of the same products or better products in the same quantity even if this result could be attained only by lengthening the period of production. Increments in input which result in a more than proportionate increase in the product's duration of serviceableness would unconditionally be deemed advantageous. The fact that men do not act in this way evidences that they value fractions of time of the same length in a different way, according as they are nearer or remoter from the instant of the actor's decision. Other things being equal, satisfaction in a nearer period of the future is preferred to satisfaction in a more distant period. Disutility is seen in waiting. The fact is already implied in the statement stressed in the opening of this chapter, that man distinguishes the time before satisfaction is attained and the time for the duration of which there is satisfaction. If any role at all is played by the time element in human life, there cannot be any question of equal valuation of nearer and remoter periods of the same length. Such an equal valuation would mean that people do not care whether success is attained sooner or later. It would be tantamount to a complete elimination of the time element from the process of valuation. The mere fact that goods with a longer duration of serviceableness are valued more highly than those with a shorter duration does not yet in itself imply a consideration of time. A roof that can protect the house against the weather during a period of 10 years is more valuable than a roof which renders this service only for a period of 5 years. The quantity of service rendered is different in both cases, but the question which we have to deal with is whether or not an actor in making his choices attaches to a service to be available in a later period of the future, the same value he attaches to a service available at an earlier period. Number 2. Time Preference as an Essential Requisite of Action 
The answer to this question is that acting men does not appraise time periods merely with regard to their dimension. His choices regarding the removal of future uneasiness are directed by the categories sooner and later. Time for men is not a homogeneous substance of which only length counts. It is not a more or a less in dimension. It is an irreversible flux, the fractions of which appear in different perspective, according to whether they are nearer to or remoter from the instant evaluation and decision. Satisfaction of a want in the nearer future is, other things being equal, prefer to that in the farther distant future. Present goods are more valuable than future goods. Time preference is a categorical requisite of human action. No mode of action can be thought of in which satisfaction within a nearer period of the future is not, other things being equal, preferred to that in a later period. The very act of gratifying a desire implies that gratification at the present instant is preferred to that at a later instant. He who consumes a non-perishable good instead of postponing consumption for an indefinite later moment, thereby reveals a higher valuation of present satisfaction as compared with later satisfaction. If he were not to prefer satisfaction in a nearer period of the future to that in a remoter period, he would never consume and so satisfy once. He would always accumulate. He would never consume and enjoy. He would not consume today, but he would not consume tomorrow either, as the morrow would confront him with the same alternative. Not only the first step toward one's satisfaction, but also any further step is guided by time preference. Once the desire A to which the scale of values assigns the rank 1 is satisfied, one must choose between the desire B to which the rank 2 is assigned and C, that desire of tomorrow, to which, in the absence of time preference, the rank 1 would have been assigned. If B is preferred to C, the choice clearly involves time preference. Purposive striving after one's satisfaction must needs be guided by a preference for satisfaction in the nearer future over that in a remoter future. The conditions under which modern man of the capitalist West must act are different from those under which his primitive ancestors lived and acted. As a result of the providential care of our forebears, we have at our disposal an ample stock of intermediate products, capital goods or produced factors of production, and of consumers' goods. Our activities are designed for a longer period of provision because we are the lucky heirs of a past which has lengthened step by step the period of provision and has bequeathed to us the means to expand the waiting period. In acting, we are concerned with longer periods and are aiming at an even satisfaction in all parts of the period chosen as the period of provision. We are in a position to rely upon a continuing influx of consumers' goods and have at our disposal not only stocks of goods ready for consumption, but also stocks of producers' goods out of which our continuous efforts again and again make new consumers' goods mature. In our dealing with this increasing stream of income, says the superficial observer, there is no heed paid to any considerations related to a different valuation of present and of future goods. We synchronize, he asserts, and thus the time element loses any importance for the conduct of affairs. It is therefore pointless, he continues, in the interpretation of modern conditions to resort to time preference. The fundamental error involved in this popular objection is caused, like so many other errors, by a lamentable misapprehension of the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy. In the frame of this imaginary construction, no change occurs. There prevails an unvarying course of all affairs. 
In the evenly rotating economy, consequently nothing is altered in the allocation of goods for the satisfaction of once in nearer and in remoter periods of the future. No one plans any change because, according to our assumptions, the prevailing allocation best serves him and because he does not believe that any possible rearrangement could improve his condition. No one wants to increase his consumption in a nearer period of the future at the expense of his consumption in a more distant period, or vice versa because the existing mode of allocation pleases him better than any other thinkable and feasible mode. The praxeological distinction between capital and income is a category of thought based on a different valuation of one's satisfaction in various periods of the future. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, it is implied that the whole income, but not more than the income, is consumed and that therefore the capital remains unchanged. An equilibrium is reached in the allocation of goods for one's satisfaction in different periods of the future. It is permissible to describe this state of affairs by asserting that nobody wants to consume tomorrow's income today. We have precisely designed the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy in such a way as to make it fit just this condition. But it is necessary to realize that we can assert with the same apodictic assurance that in the evenly rotating economy, Nobody wants to have more of any commodity than he really has. These statements are true with regard to the evenly rotating economy because they are applied in our definition of this imaginary construction. They are nonsensical when asserted with regard to a changing economy which alone is real. As soon as a change in the data occurs, the individuals are faced anew with the necessity of choosing both between various modes of one satisfaction in the same period and between one satisfaction in different periods. An increment can be either employed for immediate consumption or invested for further production. No matter how the actors employ it, their choice must needs be the result of a weighing of the advantages expected from one satisfaction in different periods of the future. In the world of reality, in the living and changing universe, each individual in each of his actions is forced to choose between satisfaction in various periods of time. Some people consume all that they earn. Others consume a part of their capital, Others save a part of their income. Those contesting the universal validity of time preference fail to explain why a man does not always invest a sum of $100 available today, although these $100 would increase to $104 within a year's time. It is obvious that this man in consuming this sum today is determined by a judgment of value which values $100 present dollars higher than $104 available a year later. But even in case he chooses to invest these $100, the meaning is not that he prefers satisfaction in a later period to that of today. It means that he values $100 today less than $104 a year later. Every penny spent today is precisely under the conditions of a capitalist economy in which institutions make it possible to invest even the smallest sums, a proof of the higher valuation of present satisfaction as compared with later satisfaction. The theorem of time preference must be demonstrated in a double way. First, for the case of plain saving, in which people must choose between the immediate consumption of a quantity of goods and the later consumption of the same quantity. Second, for the case of capitalist saving, in which the choice is to be made between the immediate consumption of a quantity of goods and the later consumption either of a greater quantity or of goods which are fit to provide a satisfaction which, except for the difference in time, is valued more highly. The proof has been given for both cases. No other case is thinkable. 
It is possible to search for a psychological understanding of the problem of time preference. Impatience and the pains caused by waiting are certainly psychological phenomena. One may approach their elucidation by referring to the temporal limitations of human life, to the individual's coming into existence, his growth and maturing, and his inevitable decay and passing away. There is in the course of man's life a right moment for everything as well as a too early and a too late. However, the praxeological problem is in no way related to psychological issues. We must conceive, not merely understand. We must conceive that a man who does not prefer satisfaction within a nearer period of the future to that in a remoter period would never achieve consumption and enjoyment at all. Neither must the praxeological problem be confused with the physiological. He who wants to live to see the later day must, first of all, care for the preservation of his life in the intermediate period. Survival and appeasement of vital needs are thus requirements for the satisfaction of any once in the remoter future. This makes us understand why in all those situations in which bare life in the strict sense of the term is at stake, satisfaction in the nearer future is preferred to that in later periods. But we are dealing with actions as such, not with the motives directing its course. In the same way in which, as economists, we do not ask why albumin, carbohydrates, and fat are demanded by man, we do not inquire why the satisfaction of vital needs appears imperative and does not brook any delay. We must conceive that consumption and enjoyment of any kind presuppose a preference for present satisfaction to a later satisfaction. The knowledge provided by this insight far exceeds the orbit for which the physiological facts concerned provide explanation. It refers to every kind of one satisfaction, not only to the satisfaction of the vital necessities of mere survival. It is important to stress this point because the term supply of subsistence, available for advances of subsistence, as used by Baumbauwerk, can easily be misinterpreted. It is certainly one of the tasks of this stock to provide the means for a satisfaction of the bare necessities of life, and thus to secure survival. But besides, it must be large enough to satisfy, beyond the requirements of necessary maintenance for the waiting time, all those wants and desires which, apart from mere survival, are considered more urgent than the harvesting of the physically more abundant fruits of production processes consuming more time. Baumbauwerk declared that every lengthening of the period of production depends on the condition that a sufficient quantity of present goods is available to make it possible to overbridge the lengthened average interval between the starting of preparatory work and the harvesting of its product. The expression sufficient quantity needs elucidation. It does not mean a quantity sufficient for necessary sustenance. The quantity in question must be large enough to secure the satisfaction of all those wants the satisfaction of which during the waiting time is considered more urgent than the advantages which a still greater lengthening of the period of production would provide. If the quantity in question were smaller, a shortening of the period of production would appear advantageous. The increase in the quantity of products or the improvement of their quality to be expected from the preservation of the longer period of production would no longer be considered a sufficient remuneration for the restriction of consumption enjoined during the waiting time. Whether or not the supply of subsistence is sufficient does not depend on any physiological or other facts open to objective determination by the methods of technology and physiology. The metaphorical term overbridge, suggesting a body of water the breadth of which poses to the bridge builder an objectively determined task, is misleading. The quantity in question is valued by men, 
and their subjective judgments decide whether or not it is sufficient. Even in a hypothetical world in which nature provides every man with the means for the preservation of biological survival, in the strict sense of the term, in which the most important foodstuffs are not scarce and action is not concerned with the provision for bare life, the phenomenon of time preference would be present and direct all actions. Some Applications of the Time Preference Theory Every part of economics is open to intentional misrepresentation and misinterpretation on the part of people eager to excuse or to justify fallacious doctrines underlying their party programs. To prevent such misuse as far as possible, it seems expedient to add some explanatory remarks to the exposition of the time preference theory. There are schools of thought which flatly deny that men differ with regard to innate characteristics inherited from their ancestors. In the opinion of these authors, the only difference between the white men of Western civilization and Eskimos is that the latter are in arrears in their progress toward modern industrial civilization. This merely temporal difference of a few thousand years is insignificant when compared with the many hundreds of thousands of years which were absorbed by man's evolution from the simian state of his ape-like forebears to the conditions of present-day Homo sapiens. It does not support the assumption that racial differences prevail between the various specimens of mankind. Praxeology and economics are foreign to the issues raised by this controversy but they must take precautionary measures lest they become implicated by partisan spirit in this clash of antagonistic ideas. If those fanatically rejecting the teachings of modern genetics were not entirely ignorant of economics, they would certainly try to turn the time preference theory to their advantage. They would refer to the circumstance that the superiority of the Western nations consists merely in their having started earlier in endeavors to save and to accumulate capital goods. They would explain this temporal difference by accidental factors, the better opportunity offered by the environment. Against such possible misinterpretations, one must emphasize the fact that the temporal head start gained by the Western nations was conditioned by ideological factors which cannot be reduced simply to the operation of environment. What is called human civilization has up to now been a progress from cooperation by virtue of hegemonic bonds to cooperation by virtue of contractual bonds. But while many races and peoples were arrested at an early stage of this movement, others kept on advancing. The eminence of the Western nations consisted in the fact that they succeeded better in checking the spirit of predatory militarism than the rest of mankind, and that they thus brought forth the social institutions required for saving and investing on a broader scale. Even Marx did not contest the fact that private initiative and private ownership of the means of production were indispensable stages in the progress from primitive man's penury to the more satisfactory conditions of 19th century Western Europe and North America. What the East Indies, China, Japan, and the Mohammedan countries lacked were institutions for safeguarding the individual's rights. The arbitrary admission of Pashas, Qadis, Rajas, Mandarins, and Daimyos was not conducive to large-scale accumulation of capital. The legal guarantees effectively protecting the individual against expropriation and confiscation were the foundations upon which the unprecedented economic progress of the West came into flower. These laws were not an outgrowth of chance, historical accidents, and geographical environment. They were the product of reason. We do not know what course the history of Asia and Africa would have taken if these peoples had been left alone. 
What happened was that some of these peoples were subject to European rule and others like China and Japan were forced by the display of naval power to open their frontiers. The achievement of Western industrialism came to them from abroad. They were ready to take advantage of the foreign capital lent to them and invested in their territories. But they were rather slow in the reception of the ideologies from which modern industrialism had sprung. Their assimilation to Western ways of life is superficial. We are in the midst of a revolutionary process, which will very soon do away with all varieties of colonialism. This revolution is not limited to those countries which were subject to the rule of the British, the French, and the Dutch. Even nations which, without any infringement of their political sovereignty, had profited from foreign capital, are intent upon throwing off what they call the yoke of foreign capitalists. They are expropriating the foreigners by various devices, discriminatory taxation, repudiation of debts, undisguised confiscation, foreign exchange restrictions. We are on the eve of the complete disintegration of the international capital market. The economic consequences of this event are obvious. Its political repercussions are unpredictable. In order to appreciate the political consequences of the disintegration of the international capital market, it is necessary to remember what effects were brought about by the internationalization of the capital market. Under the conditions of the later 19th century, it did not matter whether or not a nation was prepared and equipped with the required capital in order to utilize adequately the natural resources of its territory. There was practically free access for everybody to every area's natural wealth. In searching for the most advantageous opportunities for investment, capitalists and promoters were not stopped by national borderlines. As far as investment for the best possible utilization of the known natural resources was concerned, the greater part of the Earth's surface could be considered as integrated into a uniform world-embracing market system. It is true that this result was attained in some areas, like the British and the Dutch East Indies and Malaya, only by colonial regimes, and that autochthonous governments of these territories would probably not have created the institutional setting indispensable for the importation of capital. But Eastern and Southern Europe and the Western Hemisphere had of their own accord joined the community of the international capital market. The Marxians were intent upon indicting foreign loans and investments for the lust of war, conquest, and colonial expansion. In fact, the internationalization of the capital market, together with free trade and the freedom of migration, was instrumental in removing the economic incentives to war and conquest. It no longer mattered for a man where the political boundaries of his country were drawn. The entrepreneur and the investor were not checked by them. Precisely those nations which in the age preceding the First World War were paramount in foreign lending and investment were committed to the ideas of peace-loving, decadent liberalism. Of the foremost aggressor nations, Russia, Italy, and Japan were not capital exporters. They themselves needed foreign capital for the development of their own natural resources. Germany's imperialist adventures were not supported by its big business and finance. The disappearance of the international capital market alters conditions entirely. It abolishes the freedom of access to natural resources. If one of the socialist governments of the economically backward nation lacks the capital needed for the utilization of its natural resources, there will be no means to remedy this situation. If this system had been adopted a hundred years ago, it would have been impossible to exploit the oil fields of Mexico, Venezuela, and Iran to establish the rubber plantations in Malaya or to develop the banana production of Central America.
It is illusory to assume that the advanced nations will acquiesce forever in such a state of affairs. They will resort to the only method which gives them access to badly needed raw materials. They will resort to conquest. War is the alternative to freedom of foreign investment as realized by the international capital market. The inflow of foreign capital did not harm the receiving nations. It was European capital that accelerated considerably the marvelous economic evolution of the United States and the British dominions. Thanks to foreign capital, the countries of Latin America and Asia are today equipped with facilities for production and transportation, which they would have had to forego a very long time if they had not received this aid. Real wage rates and farm yields are higher today in those areas than they would have been in the absence of foreign capital. The mere fact that almost all nations are vehemently asking today for foreign aid explodes the fables of the Marxians and the nationalists. However, the mere lust for imported capital goods does not resuscitate the international capital market. Investment and lending abroad are only possible if the receiving nations are unconditionally and sincerely committed to the principle of private property and do not plan to expropriate the foreign capitalists at a later date. It was such expropriations that destroyed the international capital market. Intergovernmental loans are no substitute for the functioning of an international capital market. If they are granted on business terms, they presuppose no less than private loans the full acknowledgement of property rights. If they are granted, as is usually the case, as virtual subsidies without any regard for payment of principal and interest, they impose restrictions upon the debtor nation's sovereignty. In fact, such loans are for the most part the price paid for military assistance in coming wars. Such military considerations already played an important role in the years in which the European powers prepared the great wars of our age. The outstanding example was provided by the huge sums which the French capitalists, pressed hard by the government of the Third Republic, lent to Imperial Russia. The Tsars used the capital borrowed for armaments, not for an improvement of the Russian apparatus of production.